Grace and peace to you this seventh Sunday of Eastertide from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Barry Mullis, and I'm the pastor of this congregation, along with our liturgist Dave Hutting and Andrew Sin and all of our musicians. I am delighted to welcome you to our service of worship. Before we move into the body of the service, let me call to your attention one particular opportunity for you this week, which is to participate either as a sponsor or as a team member in the Sojourner Truth Walk. That's a long-standing tradition here at First Church, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. You'll find everything you need to know about it on our church website. Let us join now together in our responsive call to worship. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on God's law they meditate day and night.
The proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ even prays for us. With such assurance, we need not fear confession, but simply draw to our Maker in candor, first together and then in silence. Eternal God, we know that we are your creation, made in your image, called to reflect your goodness. We know that in Jesus Christ, you have redeemed our brokenness and renewed our spirits. And yet we are plagued by nagging doubts, perplexed by trying circumstances. We know that despite our best efforts, and sometimes due to our worst efforts, we have sinned. We know that our sin robs us of the relationship you want with us, so we ask your forgiveness and mercy. Bring us back into right relationship with you that we may witness to joy for the sake of our crucified and risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. The saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners. Brothers and sisters, believe in the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our scripture lesson for today comes from the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. We begin at the 15th verse and then read selected verses through the 26th. Listen for the word of God to us today. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons and said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. 
So among the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. When they had prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me now, if you will, in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> in Stephen Sondheim's play, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, the slave named Pseudolus, played by the incomparable Zero Mostel, begets a ridiculous scheme to win his freedom from his master, Hero, by arranging the marriage of Hero to the beautiful Philia. There's just one problem. Philia, a courtesan in the house of Marcus Lycus, has already been promised to the war hero, Milus Gloriosus. Actually, there, there's way more wrong with the plan than just that, and so what ensues is a farce, culminating in a chase scene through ancient Rome with multiple women and one man dressed in white gowns and veils and a surprise twist at the end, which I'll leave unspoiled, that resolves the situation with no harm to anyone. It's a classic comedy of errors. Actually, it rips more than one or two cues directly from Shakespeare's play, The Comedy of Errors. There's something about the unraveling of madcap plans that seems pervasive in the development of a good plot. Think about some of the funnier books or movies you know. Me Talk Pretty One Day, a comedy of errors that propelled David Sedaris to the top of the bestseller lists. A Fish Called Wanda, one of my favorites, definitely a comedy of errors. My Cousin Vinny, perhaps one of the best comedies of errors. Now, I do realize I am showing my age by my choices here, but there is something about well-meaning people doing something absolutely absurd that makes for considerable amusement. In an almost perverse way, this text from the Acts of the Apostles is a comedy of errors of the first magnitude. First, a little background. There are 120 folks present. 
That's significant because in the time of the Church of Acts, 120 was the required number of people to form a synagogue with its own council so that it could make its own decisions and implement them in the ways that it chose. So with the barest minimum quorum available, Peter sets out to restore a sense of order to what he surely perceived as chaos. They needed 12 apostles. They had 12 apostles. They needed 12 apostles again. Fair enough, 12 is a significant number in the Bible. There were 12 tribes of Israel, each named for one of the sons of Jacob. When Jesus fed the four and the five thousand, twelve baskets of leftovers were collected after the meal. Again, a nod to the twelve tribes. Jesus, of course, called twelve disciples, and there were twelve, until Judas's choices made his life run completely off the rails, and he ended it all. So Peter, newly emerging as the leader of this sort of motley crew, draws the conclusion that in order to get things right again, they must return their number to 12. And so he establishes the criteria by which the new apostle will be chosen. Now, I'm assuming they didn't include the women, despite the fact that it was the women who stayed with Jesus long after the male disciples had failed spectacularly in their attempts to remain faithful to Jesus' request that he, they stay with him. It was the women who stayed until the very end. And of course, it was the women to whom Jesus first revealed himself in the resurrection. Anyway, despite the fact that the women are clearly more qualified Two men are identified as candidates meeting Peter's criteria, that they be present from the time of John the Baptist and that they have stayed with the disciples all the way until Jesus was taken up, except, of course, for that unfortunate interlude where the men were gone faster than a parking space on Walnut Street. And it's interesting why the whole thing happened the way it did. Retaining the number 12 maintains continuity with the story of Israel, of course. Moreover, selecting someone who was there all the way through keeps up Luke's stated intent to provide an orderly account from eyewitnesses. It all makes perfect sense within a certain framework. But the humor comes from the reality that they're going to all of this effort. And yet God is about to do a very new thing. Even more than that, what they perceive as a pristine witness is just an illusion. Because, of course, it's absurd to think that the church's integrity comes from pristine leadership. That's not a commentary on present company. It's a statement of fact. The apostle they were replacing fit the bill of what they were looking for exactly. 
except that he was a traitor. And the man moderating the meeting, Peter, can hardly be considered a model of rock-ribbed rectitude, O he of three denials. The church has never been comprised of pristine persons. So much is this the case that Will Willimon writes, The church has no cause for conceit on this point. For Luke has reminded us, even before the story of empowerment begins, that a disciple, one privileged to witness the whole Christ event from the first, can and had betrayed his Lord. No scorn for later despisers of the gospel, no judgment on later infidels can match the sober, gruesomely detailed picture of the end of Judas or the irony that the one who speaks of Judas did deny and curse his own master. So Willimon concludes, the church meets no failure or deceit in the world that it has not first encountered in itself even among those who founded and led the very first congregation. So to recap, the early church sought to demonstrate its integrity by inflating its leadership with someone who seems to have had no more qualification to lead other than that he has been around for a very long time. Jesus didn't pick him. The Holy Spirit hasn't shown herself yet, and the unfortunate Matthias never gets mentioned in the Bible again. It's over faster than Alexis Rose's recording career. If the story ended here like this, it would be a tragedy, not a comedy. But it doesn't. The story doesn't end here. Well, actually, it does for Matthias, but for the rest of them, the story goes on. And because it is a story that God is unfolding and not us, it goes on in surprising and wonderful ways. Next Sunday is Pentecost. Among the texts for that day is one from Acts. It will be the one from which I preach. And it's the story about how the Holy Spirit shows up and all of a sudden Peter, who at this moment seems to be obsessed with counting, suddenly transforms into a visionary. The narrative abruptly transforms and the people in it are transformed because the Holy Spirit shows up and reminds us that God... God is always the unseen actor in the story. The disciples may have been hung up on numbers, but God was lying in wait, preparing a future for them they couldn't yet even imagine. In that new future that God is preparing, Peter becomes a leader, a real leader, because the Spirit of God is in him. It's as if He's a new person after Pentecost. And in a very real way, he was. And then there will be Saul. Saul, who supervised the murder of a young deacon named Stephen, who was following Jesus, but was then himself knocked off his horse with the vision of the gospel so that he too becomes a new person, a new creation we know as the Apostle Paul 
And this new man, Paul, a, a Pharisee born of Pharisees, becomes the great evangelist to the Gentiles, carrying the word of God into Asia Minor and Europe, and in very real ways, right up to this present moment. So here's the object lesson of this story. When God gets involved, things change. Things change because God is always working for redemption. You know the thing about those criteria that Peter the disciples laid out before they rolled the dice and landed on Matthias? None of us meet that criteria. Nobody has met that criteria for a couple thousand years. We weren't with Jesus from the start. We've never met John the Baptist. And yet the story goes on. The story goes on because it was never us leading the story. It has always been God. And God has never stopped moving the story forward. God has been picking second-string disciples to move the gospel along all through the history of the church. And just to put a fine point on it, you and I are the second-string disciples. Do you know what you signed up for as a second-string disciple? Nothing more and nothing less than sharing the good news. Now, I understand that demonstrating faith can be a little bit intimidating at times, even though I know you all know exactly what the good news is. Let me give you a handy little synopsis to, to put in your back pocket until you need it. One I heard from the late Peter Gomes a few years ago. You can use it any time. It goes like this. One, God is. Two, God is love. Three, God loves me. That's it. That's the whole gospel that is going to change the world. Because if God is, then the whole of creation is in God. And if God is love, then anything less than love is less than God. And if God loves me, then God loves you. And God is looking for some second-string disciples to keep this message rolling along. Now, I bet I can tell you in a nutshell right now why some folks are afraid of sharing the good news, and because it's usually the same reasons. Number one, they are afraid they don't know enough. Malarkey. Just remember, God is. God is love. God loves me. Or two, 
they're afraid they aren't good enough. And again, that's just a bunch of hooey. Frankly, God seems to have been largely unconcerned with the qualifications and the purity of those whom God is using. I love an old story about a young man who was getting harangued by his father one day for his lack of direction and a lack of apparent motivation in life. The story goes that his father, reaching a frustration point with the young man, said to him, Do you have any idea what Abraham Lincoln was doing when he was your age? And of course his father meant splitting rails and teaching himself to read and write on the back of a shovel. But the young man replied and said, No, but I know what he was doing when he was your age. You know, we're always works and projects, uh, works in progress, every one of us, because you see, the Holy Spirit is never done with us, not this side of the kingdom at least. We are always in the process of becoming what God is making us. Now, I've been pretty tough on Peter and the disciples, perhaps deservedly so, and I have plenty of scholars who can back up my claims of their myopia, but I am coming increasingly to the conclusion that the number one obstacle to the gospel is not our personal failings. It isn't disinterest. It's not disbelief. It's certainly not the competence or the purity of the person sharing it. No. Number one obstacle to the gospel is inertia. Whatever Peter may or may not have gotten wrong, he kept moving forward. Discipleship works the same way. God takes ordinary people, usually without particularly great qualifications, and then God does extraordinary things. The book of Acts is the book of extraordinary things. Sure, when you get people involved, there's always a strong possibility that the whole thing will wind up in a comedy of errors, and there's no telling when we'll wind up on a crazy chase, but that's the brilliance and the beauty of it. God can do anything, and God picked us. So to you and to me, the challenge remains. When God calls you to do something, do it. Whatever it is, do it. Do it. Now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us affirm our faith together with the ancient baptismal creed of the Church as we say together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead.
I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Remembering that all that we have and all that we are is a gift from God, let us return to God the gifts of what we have taken from God's abundance and the prayers of our hearts with our morning offerings.
Beloved, let us unite our hearts and our minds in prayer. Let us pray. Eternal God, we know that the events of our lives do not take you by surprise. We know that you know us so deeply, so intimately, that before a word leaves our lips, you know it. We know that you are so enmeshed in our existence that we cannot hide from you, from your judgment or your grace. And for that, we are grateful. We know that you seek us if we are lost. You guide us when we are searching. You watch over us when we rest. And we are grateful. We know that as your people, we have been charged with the duty of carrying the good news forward and that some measure of that good news means bearing one another's burdens. And so in doing, in so doing, we know that the prayers we offer will be heard. We come again praying once more for the needs of our heart and for the needs of your world. We pray for those who suffer, particularly for those struggling with COVID-19 and those who offered care to those who have succumbed to the illness. We pray for those entrusted with the care of nations that in light of the science of the disease, they may govern wisely and well. We pray for those across the globe who are oppressed, that they may know comfort and peace. We pray again for those left behind by economic prosperity. For those who have less than we do, we ask your blessing. May we find ample supplies to meet the needs before us. We know well that our need does not come from a lack of resources. It comes from a lack of generosity. So shake us once more from complacency and goad us into a greater commitment to the least of these. We pray for those pushed to the edges of our society, for the homeless, for those who struggle with mental and emotional illness, for those who live with addiction. We pray for those whom it is easy for us to rush past, lest we become engaged. We offer our prayers for victims of gun violence and for victims of all forms of violence. We ask that for all of our neighbors around us, you would make us aware and you would leave us dissatisfied with things as they are. To that end, we pray for your church, for the Church Universal and the Presbyterian Church. We ask your blessing that we might indeed be a blessing. For our beloved First Church, we offer our prayers. Guide us, uphold us, give us purpose, give us grace as we seek to share the good news of your love. We make these and all of our prayers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Friends, call, God calls us to live joyfully into a life of discipleship. And I, I believe deeply the number one cause of inertia is fear we'll get it wrong. God has been cleaning up after humankind from the beginning of it all. Don't worry. Just do what God's calling you to do. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.